Treaties intertwine nations at the time of their making and throughout their histories. If treaties were valued only for the paper, wampum, or hide that hold their words or meaning, they could easily become antiquated within a few generations. They set forth a relationship that begins in a particular moment, but their interpretations and emphasis may change over the years. The power dynamics and fortunes of the parties may shift and shift again, but the relationships that treaties mark, honor, and celebrate continue to bind the participating nations as long as they are kept vibrant through diplomacy and deliberate acts of renewal. Treaties continue to link nations together unless a nation's people, town by town, family by family, decide to end the relationship. A decision to dissolve a nation-to-nation treaty relationship would be immense, larger than the original one that forged the agreement. None of the United States treaties with native nations has ever been abrogated, even though most have been stretched to the breaking point, ignored, or all but forgotten. The nation-to-nation relationships and dealings between Native nations and the United States are difficult to understand and carry out in the modern era without an appreciation of the long history of Native treaty-making. Many today do not know that treaties are living documents that are exercised daily even by non-Native people who may not know that these are their treaties too. Treaties are possible among nations because each nation is inherently sovereign and recognizes one another's sovereign prerogatives of self-identity, self-government, and self-determination. Treaties establish a relationship, both diplomatic and familial, and they are the foundation of that relationship. Everything else is style. When the Lenape leaders and the British Quakers came together in 1682 to negotiate the agreement that became known as the Penn Treaty, they both used silence as well as the exchange of gifts to punctuate and emphasize meaning. This, in addition to the pace of sequential translation, gave speakers, interpreters, and witnesses time to absorb, note, and record what was taking place. This style of oratory became treaty-making protocol, and it was embraced by legislative bodies and colonial and early American political oratory societies, which included some of the founding fathers among their membership. In Europe, some had only dreamed of many nations united. The founding fathers first saw this unity in the Lenape, Haudenosaunee, and Muscogee confederacies, and in the Anishinaabe, Odawa, and Potawatomi alliance, as well as in other alliances. They admired these native political systems, which were the working models for the U.S. government. Tragically, these unified confederacies were the very alliances that some later American politicians were dedicated to breaking up taking some native nations to the edge of extinction. What went wrong? 
N. Scott Momaday, Kiowa, calls language misunderstandings within treaties a confliction of language. He says, Native people thought of treaties as bits of paper with this calligraphy, this print or writing on them, and that was new to them, strange to them. They did not understand that as a means of communication, as a representation of the word as such. They dealt at the level of the human voice. The spoken word was everything to them. While differing beliefs about the relative powers of the written and spoken word contributed substantially to many treaty conflicts, myriad other misunderstandings arose in treaty making, some deliberate and some innocent. Most of the problems arose from the misperceptions and stereotypes that each side brought to the endeavor, and each thought the other duplicitous. Many native people blamed non-natives for bringing from Europe their diseases and blood feuds, and they believed both were intentionally inflicted. They had never seen the flu, measles, mumps, cholera, malaria, smallpox, or typhoid before being hit by the epidemics, one right after another, that eradicated or nearly eradicated whole peoples. Is it any wonder that many native nations wanted their treaties to guarantee that Western doctors be provided to cure the Western diseases? Many Europeans and Euro-Americans considered native peoples to be beneath them, bloodthirsty, godless, and stupid. Some thought their mission was to civilize Indians, to turn them into English-speaking Christian farmers. Most white settlers believed that God meant for them to have native lands, and they behaved as if the land were exclusively theirs to use and control. Most native leaders were fine with others, including non-natives, living on, using, and setting boundaries on their lands. But they reserved for their people the freedom to travel in and use some areas. When native leaders reserved territory, they also did not give up off-reservation fishing, gathering, and hunting sites, or sacred places. They did not intend to be bound by reservation borders, but they were forced into confining situations over time, which resulted in conflicts and wars. The U.S. Supreme Court addressed this situation by developing one of the canons of federal Indian law, which is that treaties are to be interpreted as the Indians understood them at the time they were negotiated. While this did not resolve all disputes, it has helped to balance some of the inequities. Oftentimes, federal treaty commissioners negotiated in good faith but their agreements were overturned or not approved by the U.S. Senate. One of the worst cases of dishonor by the U.S. government in regard to its treaties took place in California, where the California legislature asked the U.S. Senate not to ratify 18 treaties that had been made in 1851-52 between tribal representatives and federal commissioners. 
One of the commissioners sent impassioned pleas to the Department of the Interior, warning that many Indians would be killed in the rush for gold if the treaties were not ratified. The Senate brought the treaties to the floor, then quickly withdrew and never ratified them. This left the native peoples in California, who had every right to believe they were safe on their treaty lands, to be driven out of their homes by miners or murdered if they did not leave. The main thing that went wrong with the treaty relationships of mutual respect was civilization, an ever-changing policy imposed by the United States. The policy began in 1800 with congressional appropriation of a civilization fund under which the War Department's Indian office provided grants, in effect, religious franchises to Catholic, Episcopalian, Baptist, Methodist, or other Christian denominations for the purpose of proselytizing to and converting native people. Over the century, the effort to impose European values became far-reaching, all-encompassing, and punitive. Violations of the new rules brought stiff penalties of starvation and imprisonment. Native peoples were confined to reservations, and it was a crime to leave without the Indian agent's permission. Even for obligatory family events on other reservations, or site-specific ceremonies at off-reservation sacred places. Treaty references to the so-called arts of civilization, or to similar phrases, were used to justify these measures. Native people understood the references to mean, for example, that they would receive the benefits of Western education and teachers to teach their children about non-native ways, but not that the new ways would replace or try to replace native values or knowledge systems. Beginning in 1883, secretaries of the interior issued civilization regulations, which were enforced until they were withdrawn a half century later in 1935. The rules banned the sun dance and all other so-called feasts assimilating theory to in 1921, Indian Affairs Commissioner's Circular ordered that a careful propaganda be undertaken by federal agents to educate public opinion against the dance. The rules forbade giveaway and other honoring ceremonies, including funerary rites. For example, an Indian defendant could not argue that his status as a mourner justified taking or destroying property according to tribal custom. To the government, this was not a sufficient or satisfactory answer to any of the offenses. The civilization regulations criminalized everything that was traditional or customary in Indian life, even banning ponies. Pigs, however, were allowed, the idea being that without ponies, Indians could not ride away but with pigs, they would take up farming. Native treaty signers, once respected as leaders and diplomats, were now labeled hostiles, the official term for violators of the rules, 
ringleaders, troublemakers, and fermenters of dissent. If they could not be brought to their knees any other way, they were controlled through their children. In the name of civilization, many native children were removed from their families and sent to distant places for education, which initially consisted of an English-only, Christian-only curriculum. The regulations made it a criminal act for any so-called medicine man or parent or other hostile to operate as a hindrance to the civilization of a tribe, resort to any artifice or device to keep the Indians under his influence, adopt any means to prevent the attendance of children at the agency schools, or use the arts of a conjurer to prevent the Indians from abandoning their heathenish rites and customs. It was a crime to interfere with the progressive education of the children. This meant that a parent could not attempt to stop a child from being taken to boarding school. A 1902 Indian Affairs Commissioner's circular entitled Long Hair Prohibited was sent to federal agents. The wearing of long hair by the male population of your agency is not in keeping with the advancement they are making, or soon will be expected to make in civilization. The returned male student far too frequently goes back to the reservation and falls into the old custom of letting his hair grow long. He also paints profusely and adopts all the old habits and customs which his education in our industrial schools has tried to eradicate. Carlisle Indian Industrial School was the first federal Indian boarding school. It opened in 1878 on an army base in western Pennsylvania. Carlisle's founding superintendent from 1879 to 1904 was Captain Richard Henry Pratt who had fought native nations on the plains in scorched earth campaigns under Major General Philip H. Sheridan and Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer's command. In Indian civilization, I am a Baptist, said Pratt in an 1883 address, because I believe in immersing the Indians in our civilization and when we get them under, holding them there until they are thoroughly soaked. Carlyle employed corporal punishment and other abusive treatments to civilize the children. By the time it closed in 1918, more than 10,000 native young people had been drenched, if not drowned, in Pratt's version of civilization. Pratt handpicked his early classes of students from among the youngest children of the native leaders he fought in order to control the strongest of the reservation families. In my own Cheyenne family, he chose Chief Bull Bear's youngest daughter, Wasta, Elsie Davis, and two youngest sons, Oscar Bull Bear and Thunderbird, Richard Davis. Thunderbird wrote that his father wanted him to go to Carlisle, as if the choice had been bull bears to make, but it was not. Pratt also took bull bear's grandson, the son of his eldest daughter, Cl- 
clouding woman, and of the legendary Cheyenne warrior, Roman Nose. Pratt took others in Bulbera's extended family, including Matches, a prisoner artist whom Pratt had supervised during his command of the prison at Fort Marion, Florida, in which native fighters of the Red River War had been incarcerated. Pratt seemed to take personal pride in Thunderbird's progress at Carlisle toward civilization. In an 1890 commissioner's report, he recounted seeing Thunderbird after a Cheyenne scalp dance at the headwaters of the Washita River during the Red River Campaign. Among these dancers was a lad about 10 or 11 who was induced to attend the agency school. On the opening of Carlisle Indian Industrial School, three years later, he was one of the first pupils. He was bright and capable, advancing rapidly, and in time became sergeant major of the cadet organization. After being eight years with us, he married one of our girls in 1888, found employment, and went out from us to live near Philadelphia. During these three years, neither he nor his family has cost the United States one cent. Both he and his wife are respected members of the church and community. He pays his taxes and votes. He desires to remain among civilized people and follow the pursuits of civilized life. He can talk of his former savage habits and the habits of his people, but he despises them and deplores the pauper condition into which his people have been forced. My f- mother's grandparents were Thunderbird or Nonoma Otsevahatsi, Richard Davis, and Nellie Aspinall, both in the first group of hostage students, who entered Carlisle in 1879. Thunderbird was Cheyenne and born in the Dogmen Society camp during the making of the Medicine Lodge Creek Treaty of 1867. His parents were Buffalo Wallow and Bull Bear, Buffalo Bear. Nellie Aspinall was Pawnee, born in Genoa, Nebraska, in 1868. His older brother, her older brother, Harry Sargent, became her guardian when their parents died, and she was sent to Carlisle. They each rode the train alone across half a continent. When they arrived at Carlisle, their medicine pouches, moccasins, and uncomfortable clothes were confiscated. Their long hair was cut short. They were deloused with kerosene, even though they did not have lice, and they were given scratchy uniforms and hard shoes, which never quite fit right. They often were whipped, or their mouths were rubbed raw and blistered with lye soap for reasons they never knew. Thus began their so-called civilization. After graduating, they married at Carlisle, had the first three of their nine children there, and lived in the dairyman's cottage behind the school's farmhouse. Beginning in February 1891, Carlyle sold their family portrait for 20 cents a copy, 
through the Indian Helper and other school publications. Thunderbird's sister, Wa Sta, Elsie Davis, still a student at Carlisle at age 19, died of consumption at, in 1893 and was buried at Carlisle. She and other Indian students were later exhumed and reburied three times before being reinterred, perhaps, in what is now the Carlisle Historic Cemetery, where it is doubtful that any of the 186 native young people are buried near the tombstones etched with their names. I observed my own parents, who were also boarding school survivors, struggle with the ongoing effects of civilization. Dad, Freeland Douglas, Muskogee, 1922-2007, was born at home on his mother's allotment near Okama, Oklahoma. At age nine, he was taken to Yuki Indian School, where he was beaten every time he was caught speaking Muskogee. In the lunch line or at the table, he would call out to another Muskogee boy in their language. It would have been rude not to do so, and he would be beaten and given punitive work detail. Once I asked what he was beaten with. Boards, he replied. One by twos and two by twos. Think of that against a nine-year-old. It compares to being beaten with a bat. He once told Washington Post reporter Richard Leiby that he could guess when the civilization regulations had been lifted, even though he hadn't heard of them before. He was right in thinking they ended in the mid-1930s. That's when, he said, school disciplinarians started hitting him with leather straps instead of unforgiving boards. Dad later told me that was a really good day. I went with Dad to some of his Yuki Indian school reunions, where he and other men in their 70s would laugh, in the way of survivors, about their experiences there. When a boy would run away, the white bounty hunters would drive their buckboard wagons to his home and wait until the boy showed up. They would put him in a wooden cage, drive back to Yuki, and collect five dollars, which was the going rate for the capture and return of a runaway Indian boy. Dad's former schoolmates said that all of them, of all of them, he earned the most money for the bounty hunters.